episode, Dr. Angia Fatona and I explore the importance of knowledge transfer and third-generational relationships, collective memory, and peer learning and curating. Dr. Fatona is cherished by many as an educator and knowledge facilitator. With a career spanning over 30 years, she came into curatorial practice in the mid-1990s in Vancouver with a desire to generate spaces for racialized folks and more specifically for Black queer women and their communities so that they can be represented in the ways they want it to be seen. In this conversation, my guest provides the social-political context that grounded her practice while sharing key practitioners and collaborators who have fueled her research, provided room for experimentation, trusted her vision, and modeled different roles and conversations, inspiring her from her early years at Trent University, in the 1980s until today. The same unwavering collective energy that tended to her career propelled the launch of her dream project, the groundbreaking Center for the Study of Black Canadian Diaspora at OCAD University. Through her account of the support systems she had over the years, it is made evident that longevity in the arts has never been an individualistic endeavor. As we address the ongoing urgency inherent to working as a curator while Black, we take time to unpack definitions of failure and practice, which parallels the importance of repetition and risk-taking for creative freedom and expansion. Dr. Fatona puts forward the notion of curating as a repeating performance, which denotes how the term exhibition-making provides an opportunity for curatorial practice to unfold and become. The word making is a playground for new experiments and collective reflections while acknowledging that it isn't finite and that the full breadth of a matter is yet to be discovered. I am internally grateful for my relationship with Dr. Fatona and the role and conversations she had modeled for me. Angia Fatona is an independent curator and an associate professor at the Ontario College of Art and Design University. She is concerned with issues of equity within the sphere of the arts and the pedagogical possibilities of artworks produced by, quote-unquote, other Canadians. In articulating a broader perspective of Canadian identities, her broader interest is in how art and quote-unquote culture and quote-unquote education can eliminate complex issues that pertain to social justice, citizenship, belonging, and nationhood. She is the recipient of awards from the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and was the 2017-18 OCADU Massey Fellow. Fatona is a Canada Research Chair Tier 2 in Canadian Black Diaspora Cultural Production. She has published scholarly articles, catalog essays, and book chapters in a range of publications. Dr. Andrea Fatona is based in Takaronto, Toronto, which is on the treaty lands and territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the traditional territories of the Hurorandat, the Udoshone, the Chippewa, and the Anishinaabeg First Nations. 
This episode was recorded in the winter of 2023, and I hope you enjoy it. Andrea Fatona, I am so happy. I have to say your, your name in full because it has this aura. I'm so <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast talking about the importance of intergenerational relationships. I do think that having um, having you as a mentor and also Pamela Edmonds and um, also having Alice Mingwei Jim at Concordia really shaped the way I am practicing today and also kind of broadening my imagination and scope about what curating can be, um, how it can be practiced. And I think these relationships really kind of can really guide you, f- uh, fuel um, your, yeah, your endeavors and, and, and see yourself in the future also um, and thinking through longevity. Um, but before we get into um, these notions, these questions, um, I want everybody to know, um, I mean, of who, especially the people who don't know you, but I'm also like, who doesn't know you? <laughs> <laughs> um, if you can describe what is your curatorial practice, sort of an overview, uh, maybe of your, the philosophies behind it, but also please provide details about your Canada research chair role at OCAD University at the same time. Will do. Thanks, Jean-Vier, for having me. Well, I came to curatorial practice in the, I would say, mid-1990s out of a real urgency to see myself and people like myself, Black women, Black queer women, Mm -hmm. in gallery spaces and um, contributing to Black curatorial practice and presentation. So in the mid-90s, I was in Vancouver hanging around with people like Monica Kingagnon, a group of mm-hmm. black artists like David George, and really thinking about what it means to be seen as people of color in that space. So mm. I came up with a project called Queer Collaborations in which I worked with two white artists, white photo-based artists to mm-hmm. document and work with Queers, queer women, lesbians of color in Vancouver, and to kind of change the narrative of how and process of how things were done. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were photographed uh, by these women in the kinds of poses and presentations that we wanted to see ourselves in. So kind of shift the narrative there about us presenting ourselves in our own likeness. Mm-hmm. And with that project, organized a roundtable to talk about issues of representation and exclusion mm. in the context of the art world in Vancouver. And that was my start. Um, the project was taken up very well. Um, it was reviewed by Robin Lawrence of the Vancouver Sun, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it really opened up some questions about who's representing who mm. um, and um, really got me passionate about continuing that type of work. Oh, sorry to interrupt. I was just no, like, so did you like, stumble into curating or it's just something that you you know you were always interested interested in art history and 
you know, like you kind of knew that this job was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't really stumble into curating. I knew what it was. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd been around people presenting work, you know, for a long time, but I hadn't Mm -hmm. actually seen myself in that role. Right. Yeah. And so the urgency of being around the milieu of uh, galleries, particularly when I got to Vancouver through Mm -hmm. volunteering and just through my being very interested in in, in Black art uh, Mm -hmm. and its presentation, realized that they weren't folks who were thinking about presenting us Black people in the ways I wanted to be seen and the ways I know that my community of of folks wanted to be seen. So I took the plunge and mm-hmm. actually, um, like I said, put in a proposal for this exhibition to uh, Basic Inquiry Studio, which was uh, an artist-run center of sorts, right? So I just want to put the plug in for artist-run centers and um, mm-hmm. taking the risk, right, on someone yeah. who had ideas but hadn't had the space to practice. So that's how it started. And that's how it started. And then, you know, a couple of decades later, um, because, yeah, I'm born in the 80s and I'm 30 something. So like, I don't yes. know maths anymore. <laughs> I'm like, what? So I've been doing this. What is, what is the 90s now? Like, um, I think I just don't want to tell myself how long that is. I try not to tell myself either. Right, right. So I, I, I can't add, I can't subtract. <laughs> so let's just not count years and just say, and now, <laughs> and now you are, you know, yeah. developing this really exciting uh, initiative. And so, yeah, uh, several decades later, after practicing both in artist-run centers and um, in public galleries, as well as an independent um, curator, mm-hmm. I've had the most amazing opportunity of my life to actually do the thing that I've been realizing I wanted to do mm-hmm. all through this uh, trajectory I've been following, which is to make sure that the works of Black cultural producers and now specifically Black curators, are -hmm. visible and documented within the context of Canadian art history. So I've been awarded. I'm so excited for this. And I Mm -hmm. I have to say, I want to also say that, you know, part of getting this award of uh, a Canada Research Chair Tier 2 comes Mm -hmm. with the support of a lot of people along the way. It's not something Mm -hmm. I've done on my own. Mm -hmm. I just want to say that, you know, I've had great mentorship. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I feel it's important. I've had great mentorship um, and mentorship in terms of people taking a chance on my ideas Mm -hmm. and giving me space to work. You know, it started with Monica Kingayon bringing me into Art Speak in -hmm. Vancouver as a co-director back in the 90s, Mm co-director, co-curator, It also, you know, I was able to co-direct, I mean, sorry, to direct and curate at Art Space in Peterborough, um, as well as taking, getting my first job in a public gallery at the Auto Art Gallery because of uh, the director, Mela Constantiniti. I'd say really taking a risk and a chance and giving me the space to do the things 
that yeah. I wanted to do. So those, you know, getting space is so important. So important, yeah. And getting spaces that are there to allow for experimentation and failure mm-hmm. um, and iteration. Um, I love point. that you name failure. It's mm-hmm. important, <laughs> but we don't want to talk about it, but it is yes. important. Yeah. And I feel like so often we as Black curators and cultural producers get brought into spaces mm-hmm. and much of our work has to be resolved. We don't have the time and we get brought in also in times of urgency to fill spaces. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, but we also work in some ways in urgency even if we're not brought in in urgency, like there's always like there's a state of being that is urgent. Um, yeah, there's always something at stake for us, and you know, mm-hmm. I think it keeps us on our toes in terms yeah. of realizing that the kinds of work we do, mm-hmm. particularly around uh, inclusion, yeah, is never done right. And so I think no. that's the thing that. I, I believe we see the urgency because we always understand it as an unfinished bit of business that it's ongoing. And an ongoing business. Yeah. yeah. And to have to like keep it alive while people like don't pay attention to it so that like when people get back to it, then like there's an evolution of vocabulary, there's more case studies, there's more writing, you know? Exactly. And so Mm -hmm. part of the center's work is to make sure that we, and to ensure that we don't continue to waste our time looking for histories by documenting Mm. those histories, making them accessible making them accessible in, in visual form, making them accessible in the uh, voices and words of the cultural producers, artists, uh, curators, and critics, ensuring that there is um, discourse that's generated about our work through writing. Um, because mm-hmm. our work gets lost, I believe, because it hasn't been um, written about in ways that allow it to survive in the context of what's considered Canadian art history. We Mm. need textual documentation. And Mm -hmm. so that's the work um, the Centre and the Canada Research Chair Award is allowing me to do by collaborating with several folks in the community and Mm -hmm. other academics doing this work. And you are also starting as a specific year um, which is, I think it's 1987. Yeah. The project starts in 1987. One, as a way to think about what was happening pre the um, inception of the Multicultural Act, mm. and um, which what took, which was in 1980, I always say this wrong, 88, 89. Yeah. And the concomitant uh, policies around funding, that took place at um, art funding, state art funding institutions like the Canada Council, the OAC. Mm -hmm. So from my research, I have ascertained, and also not just from my research, from my own engagement at that time, Mm -hmm. because that's when I started to come of age in the context of participating in art production, 
and um, just being very present in its presentation, I started to get grants from the Canada Council in the early 90s, um, mm, made a okay. first piece called uh, a media, sorry, a video called Hogan's Alley, co-produced and co-directed with Cornelia Weingarten, another one of my mentors from Vancouver. And so, and I began to be invited to sit on juries, art juries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of that, I was getting firsthand knowledge of what was mm-hmm. being produced, where they were coming from. And I was deeply uh, involved in the artist-run centre movement by the um, mid-1990s. So I had a sense of what was being produced and realised that Black artists, artists of colour, Indigenous artists were being funded in a fairly healthy way to produce work. Mm-hmm. Yet, or to sustain. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, much of that work, I, I don't think, was being circulated and presented in a really vibrant way. Mm-hmm. You know, there were there were organizations and festivals like uh, Kanbaia and Salafi. There were screenings, there were presentations yet. And when you look back and, you know, Johanna Joachim has done some work on this. When you look back at the writings and documentation that's taken place, there's, there's, it's a bit sketchy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the full breadth of what we were doing at that moment in time hasn't been captured. I'm sorry to interrupt. What do you mean Mm -hmm. by sketchy? Sketchy meaning that there are uh, there are places in which uh, the documentation isn't there. So when I say sketchy, mm. I mean maybe scant is the word. It's not as robust as it should be. Um, right. A number, yeah, a number of exhibitions that are quite important exhibitions. Yes. Like the Dawa exhibition of 1989, which was written about, mm-hmm. I think, by Alice McGem in her thesis and was taken up by a few people but in terms of the importance of that exhibition it hasn't Mm -hmm. got um, the kind of uh, critical writing to frame Mm -hmm. it within within the practices of the moment and so that's one example of work and there are many other examples of work that just didn't get the attention that I believe was needed yeah yeah because I was also thinking about how um, a lot of these sh- shows, like some of them had um, institutional um, sort of like partnerships, um, especially around Black History Month, of course. Um, but then even though there was an institution partnership, there was not um, the kind of care into documenting that partnership. And and also a lot of shows ex- exist, like the memorabilia, like in private archives more than public archives exactly so the whole job and work of trying to piece together and create a more complete archive is going to take the work of going into you know personal archives institutional archives um and you know you just pointed out this thing about institutions and organizations as well so you know is still contention about what the first uh, Black exhibition was at the AGO. And not that I'm into first as mm-hmm. a way, just helps us to also see our histories and how long our history 
and our activities and participation has been here. But there's still, mm -hmm. because of the lack of documentation on the part of the AGO back then, we're still yeah. we're still piecing together that history, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it does go into the question. I think I'm through the question, I'm going to like go one and then go back. And, um, mm -hmm. but I think it kind of points out also in like having the discussion with you and talking with artists who have been practicing, uh, for a long time, curators who have been around a long, for a long time. I realized that without having those dialogues, I would have like a huge knowledge gap. Um, and then so I just wondered if you had any comments about, you know, the role of intergenerational dialogue in your work in the like continuing basically a bit more of describing um, your involvement, but also maybe for you, like, did you have access to knowledge by exactly like with the people that you have been uh, who have supported your practice earlier on? How did that nourish um, your way of doing? Yeah. Yeah, I think intergenerational dialogue is so important. And I'm really, really fortunate to work as an educator. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm always around <laughs> folks of all ages, all backgrounds, all classes, all of that, mm -hmm. which, you know, allows for knowledge to generate and for me to keep learning, right, in these mm -hmm. contexts. I remember back in the day in Vancouver when Zainab Virji put on um, Invisible Colors and I had the opportunity to meet uh, Norbeze Philip and Claire Prieto um, mm. because I was a volunteer. And, you know, I hung out with those women and what was most important for me to mm -hmm. be in contact in that way, in a very embodied way, um, was to see these women doing what they do, what they did mm -hmm. and what they do and continue to do. And to realize, you know what, I can do that. Mm, if they're doing yeah. it and I can be mm -hmm. here and they're sharing their ideas with me, I could do that too. Um, and so it mm -hmm. was just that, right? The presence of other people who had yeah. made it in my mind at that time and were mm -hmm. central to doing something that reflected me just gave me lots of energy absolutely and so i never forget that i never forget that mm -hmm. uh, i mean you were my first it's so embarrassing to say that <laughs> publicly but you were my first black teacher i had to get to the master's level uh -huh. to have a first black woman teacher it, yeah. it took that long um, and that made a really big, big impression on me, but also like you, I don't know, like the way, the way your demeanor and the way you speak and your knowledge. Um, I was very impressed, <laughs> but oh. it was, it was, uh, it was just kind of like, I, I knew I wanted to be in curatorial practice. Um, personally, I stumbled into it. Um, that's I'm, I'm part of that kind of story. Um, and then was trying to find my way and and see what was out there for me. But then like seeing you in that class, introducing theories around curatorial practice and ways of doing and um, and the language you had around it and um, philosophy that you've kind of like cultivated for yourself. Um, 
all of that, I was like, oh, I found, like, I found a, a model. I found a role model, you know, to abide to, I think. Um, and then, and then after that, also like um, meeting you and with the State of Blackness Conference, um, then it opened kind of also like the door to getting to know more practitioners. And even like um, there were names I I was seeing before, um, you know, like Dominique Fontaine and uh, Gaetan Vernat, like around in Montreal, but um, never really truly met them until being in Toronto and then kind of like seeing other models also of doing and then because, yeah, it's important to, yeah, to be able to project yourself. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Thank you for also, you know, remembering the state of Blackness. A lot of my practice, I, you know, upon reflection, I realize comes out of experiences I've had in the past, like my own education mm-hmm. and people like Kari Daly in my master's degree or Ronald Walcott modeling things for me. Mm-hmm. Or that meeting of of a generation before me at Invisible Colors, or even mm-hmm. further back, you know, when I was in my first year at Trent University in the early 80s, mm-hmm. I was a uh, intern for a uh, project or a festival, sorry, called Canadian Images. And it was uh, organized by uh, a woman who I'll call, it was a mentor as well, named Sudida. And this was a program of of Canadian independent film and video works. Mm. One of the, the first festival to do that. And at through that uh, work and festival, I met people like Cameron Bailey. I met people like Richard Fung, and a list, a list, a list of all sorts of other racialized film and video makers. And again, I think that was a really, really important moment and a really important set of activities for me to be involved in as well, to show me that there were uh, a group and a really critical and politicized group of artists in this country, racialized artists, including Black artists, who were doing work who were doing work around representation and who were doing work around institutional critique and who were doing work around critique of the Canadian state and its racism. And so, you know, all of that stuff, all of those activities really helped me. So yeah, um, I undergrad years, I was fortunate at the age, I think, of 18 or 19 to start meeting a list of other well-known um, media artists and folks who are are quite central to the production of culture and dissemination of culture in Canada. And it made me realize that, yes, there are a group of people who are doing this work. And it introduced mm-hmm. me to a group of people who are thinking politically, mm-hmm. as well as aesthetically. It introduced me to Fuse Magazine. Um, oh, yeah. And all, yeah. And so mm-hmm. you talk about intergenerational um, dialogue, it was coming to me in a whole bunch of ways, mm-hmm. both in an embodied experiential way, and in terms of the kinds of um, texts and like Fuse Magazine and, and and writings that were taking place. So it was very exciting for me at the time. It's so unfortunate that Fuse Magazine um, has been, is no longer existing. I think I 
I have maybe the last um magazine, like the last issue they printed and it was a, such a discovery for me um I have it it was one of the first time I was seeing also like like a theme magazine like around decolonizing um it's such a rich publication uh and served as also an experimental space for so many exactly including me you know mm-hmm. I started to write for Fuse magazine uh, Cameron Bailey, all of these people wrote for Fuse magazine, Ronaldo Walcott, who mm-hmm. became my supervisor for my doctoral thesis. Um, I believe it gave us a platform to develop our work, you know, mm-hmm. and to have a voice, to have a voice out there in terms of um cultural representation and politics and bringing all of that together. So, I mean, I think the strength of Fuse was, right, it brought all of these issues. It brought art, it brought politics, it brought culture, brought it all into one place without um, separating it out as the arts wants, tends to want to do to see itself as separate from life in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really meshed into politics, but also, yeah, daily concerns and you're right. It was really like wholesome as an approach. And also, you know, that issue about decolonizing, it's not that they were not tackling that before. It's just like um, they make they made space for the new language that was emerging about it, which was very fascinating to me, especially um, being able to have my hands on, uh, on pre- previous copies and uh, looking at the language. And um, I had a thought that crossed my mind and it left. So I guess we can, oh, yes. Well, you know, we were also talking about anti-Black racism a long time ago, right? Mm-hmm. That's the yeah. about Fuse, like you look at the language, mm-hmm. it's about anti-Black racism became yeah. a real um, way of analysis, a space, a way to think through what was going on. And look, we're now really taking up that mm-hmm. analysis now, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um I think I was, uh, I mean, I was thinking through because you were talking about Monica Kingano and uh, you also talked about uh, Rinaldo Walcott and uh, what I hear by naming the um, also importance of peer learning, because in my questions I have, I'm thinking about intergenerational dialogue and mentorship. Um but I think it's also important to talk about the ways in which like among peers, um, we have this really great supportive roles. I mean, I also think that like, even though there's like the P like mentor status and mentee, um, there is also like a collision between like, you know, depending, like usually maybe I hope, you know, you become collegial and, um, people become colleagues and they become peer but I don't know if you also had like any thoughts about peer learning and and the role it has in your life great question because you know I've been thinking about peer learning mentorship a lot because I've realized that in my own practice and my life folks like you Genevieve, folks mm-hmm. like Chietza, mm-hmm. um, who were students, have become my peers. And you folks have become part of the um, the circle of feedback, the circle of support. Um, mm-hmm. And 
I think much like my own teaching and learning practice, my my learning in the curatorial or slash exhibition making space is similar in that I'm always learning from and with the people I'm facilitating learning with. And then it 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 evolves to the point, much like with you, where you become that person or part of the group of people where knowledge is constantly being exchanged Mm -hmm. on a level where, you know, we switch back and forth in that place of mentoring and caring and being Mm -hmm. mentees at the same time. And that for me is the really beautiful thing. The other thing that's really nice for me in the context of always being in a learning position and particularly shifting into that learning position with the folks I have been supposedly teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something? <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> absolutely, you have been teaching a lot. Well, you know, I, I, sh- I say, I mean, I like to say facilitating knowledge because I feel like I get really right. implicated in that way. When I say mm-hmm. teaching, it just seems a little bit one sided. Yeah. Um, and it's not like that. Oh, can we, I'm sorry, can we stay on that thought a little bit about facilitating yes. knowledge and also like, and it's enmeshment with curating? Yes. Like, um, yeah, like, I think I want to hear more on that on your end. What do you think okay. about that? <laughs> like, that's so, the you question. Know, and it's funny because, you know, in my in in my teaching practice or reading things about exhibition making and mm-hmm. you know the overarching um dominance sometimes of the curator mm-hmm. so i've actually started talking about myself in the context that i make exhibitions much like other curators i'm not the first person to say it much like other curators have said right um but I, I see this thing this practice and process of making exhibitions as one of generating new knowledge mm-hmm. and circulating knowledges as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it as knowledge generation, not education, but knowledge generation so that it's really trying to create a um, a feedback loop in, loop in some way between the um, person engaging with the exhibition, um, mm-hmm. the artists, and... Um, the framing of how I I come to frame the works in an exhibition. I kind of feel like, you know, much like much like a course outline that I develop for my classroom practice, I almost feel like my exhibition practice unfolds in that kind of way as well. So I tend to also do primarily group exhibitions mm-hmm. with thematics as a way to allow different kinds of voices to to speak on an issue mm-hmm. um not in an objective way as you know because I'm choosing those voices to make a to make right. a point and so I feel like exhibition making for me is about creating ideas putting mm-hmm. them out working with artists and their objects Mm-hmm. to make those ideas visible in much the same way I would do in my classroom. Mm. What's the, um, and hoping that people will walk away in mm. their own spaces, putting the dots together and hopefully coming up with something new as a way to think about those ideas. 
kind of like at the like the aftermath of the exhibition is a bit like like the the takeaway and the new ideas that you get in the space because of the dialogues of the work and how they are conversing with one another and with the audience but also like when the audience is leaving the space and keep on thinking through these themes and maybe observing them differently because of the exhibition. Exactly. And you know what I always feel as well that, mm. you know, coming to these new ideas, it doesn't happen, doesn't have to happen immediately. Mm-hmm. So hope, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I hope that people can go away and when the moment is right, at times and the puzzle clicks together that something new gets seen and felt or understood over time yeah mm-hmm. that's how I feel about it <laughs> <laughs> okay something else like I know yeah I'm, I'm veering off the topic right now but I think it's because I was so excited when you introduced to me the concept of exhibition making because in you know, tracing the history of curating, well, there's this, the colonial history of gathering and, and stealing. And I mean, yes, <laughs> um, showing <laughs> status of the colonizers and all of that. Um, there's the caretaking being a stored of stolen objects <laughs> or um, <laughs> objects that are um, highlighting dominance or a dominant culture or a civilization, yada, yada, yada. But it was not really creative in, in the sense that I think there could be debates about maintenance and creativity. But um, then later, there was kind of like the status of the curator as, I know, I think it, there's a language built that is like very similar to exactly like the, I think it's, did I talk to about that with Pamela Uh, talking about like the ego artists there's like also something about like the curator ego and like the rising of like curator superstars and and something to aspire to that has like a lot of it's not really like you know it's hierarchical and just it's yeah it's not really collaborative and there's more of uh yeah like I put work there and you know artists are doing as as told and and so forth um but when you were talking about exhibition making there was definitely I feel like it was kind of like bringing like an openness to curating but also highlighting like that that facet about research that we don't talk a lot about and how that research can come through anything and like the different textures that an idea can take like in your mind and like there's a whole world of creative like endeavor when thinking through an exhibition that I think are not really talked about in the old definitions of curating and yeah I thought like exhibition making yeah we're making something but it's still I mean among curators a lot of them are talking about it but I feel like it's not mainstream or maybe I'm wrong I mean you know I think the way as Black curators, as Black artists, as Black audiences, I think the mainstream's talking about it, but, you know, I f- feel like we've done it differently and that we've always mm. been making exhibitions. I think about, yeah, Pam and um, Sally and mm-hmm. that collective. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think about I think about the way we make we make our presentation activities. Mm-hmm. And for me, what I see, and it might be all that different for other communities, I mean for dominant communities, but I see that we're so, so intentional about it in our communities. And for mm. me, what it is is it's about a real focus on on the research, a real focus on the artist relationship because we're working with contemporary and living artists mm. or in my case anyway that there there is a care that I think we come to um mm-hmm. about how we work with our artists because we understand the issues of exclusion and what that throws up particularly anti-black exclusion mm-hmm. I think we understand I think we have to really work hard particularly as curators working with institutions, that kind of relationship. And we have to negotiate that very well to care for ourselves, Mm -hmm. to care for the artworks and Mm -hmm. projects we want to bring forward and to care for our communities because we know what it is, the communities, because I feel like we're, you know, a little bit more in touch. And I can say that I'm working in a, in a educational institution in a university. So I just have to acknowledge too that my notion of being close to the community is a little mm-hmm. bit different than what it was 30 years ago right. when that was all I did. I was in there, in there, in there. I still am, mm-hmm. but it, it's a different inflection at the moment. Mm-hmm. But we care. We care about a multiplicity of right. um, stakeholders, including the mm-hmm. artwork itself, mm-hmm. which makes us a little bit more intentional about our exhibition making. Right. I think um, it's maybe worth naming, like, who are the stakeholders? Well, again, for me, you know, the stakeholders are the artists. The stakeholders mm-hmm. are my communities of folks that I'm working yeah. with. Uh, I think the the stakeholders are the institutions we're working with too. And that's part of the Mm -hmm. thing we have to negotiate. Right. Because sometimes what they want isn't necessarily what we want. Right. And we have Mm -hmm. to come up with some negotiated place where we feel that we're not being, what is the word, extracted from in ways that we've always been extracted from. So how do we, how do we create a balance Mm -hmm. when working with these institutions that are primarily extractive, trying to do something else? And we know there's something to be got from uh, working with them. They know there's something to be had from working from us. Uh, with us so how do we create these spaces where we make sure we're not going to be oppressed in those situations over and over again Mm -hmm. so those for me are the stakeholders and the artwork I mean I'm going to give the artwork some life as well Mm -hmm. Um, the artwork itself is a huge stakeholder for me because I think the works I choose to show or want to make visible have something to say and they say it whether or not we're here so how do we make sure that it's out there Mm -hmm. and um to go back to exhibition making, but then I'm gonna thread back to inter like different generations and how things maybe shift or or don't. I'm thinking about like by not alluding, um, using making as an anchor in curatorial practice. I also think that it goes back to when you name um, failing as one of the situations or or happenstance in curating. I just wonder, what do you think failing means, like meant when you started 
as a curator and also absolutely thinking through your positionality and what maybe failing means now. Do you think it shifted or does it remain the same? Because we're talking about stakeholders and then I just wondered like, yeah, just thinking about like, are the stakes the same? Are the pressures the same? Because it feels as there's a lot that are echoing, yeah, what was happening 20 years, uh, 30, 40 years, but it's just like different masks, different words, yeah, right. different strategies. So for me, failing and its consequences haven't changed from the beginning. I think that I'm just able to now articulate what I'm thinking through and this idea of fail, failure and failing a little bit with a little bit more clarity than I could have earlier in my, in my career, in my practice. And so, you know, a failure for me means not getting it totally right each time. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not getting it wrong. So it's about getting feedback in certain ways to see the things that did not work mm-hmm. as as and the ability to then to incorporate that feedback or that understanding of what didn't quite work into future projects i feel that um given the high stakes we have with our presentation activities mm-hmm. we have a lot of pressure to be perfect Mm-hmm. Um, and dominant society and dominant structures uh, write us out at the little, at the first uh, sight of failure or imperfection in our work. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's this idea of needing to have the space because I feel that out there in the art world, in those dominant spaces, individuals have always been given the chance and space Mm -hmm. to fail Mm -hmm. a chance and space to be mediocre until you practice enough (laughs) to get very good Mm -hmm. which is part of making right which is part of making Mm -hmm. and so this idea of making for me again of of using a kind of present participle in Mm -hmm. the description of the doing means that it's always unfolding right it's always coming into being somehow so our making is always evolving it's not made it's not done Mm -hmm. so I feel like my practice is always trying to figure out how to do Mm -hmm. a little bit better or how to do something else how to take the risk right to go outside of the things I already know and say, I'm going to try this. Or to rework an idea. I think something yeah. that like, we don't talk enough is about repeats and how they're like, I think they're needed in curatorial practice only because I think like in curatorial practice, I mean, I think artists also feel that, but there's always like this notion of novelty and how you're always supposed to just like do different things, more things all the time. But an exhibition is never fully the full spectrum of one idea because like you're always kind of, you know, you're proposing an idea, you are like generating, as you're saying, like facilitating knowledge around an idea, but really like you cannot exhibit like a hundred (laughs) artists. I mean, you can, but um, 
it's rare that we have the occasion to do that. It's also a lot of work. I don't think a lot of people want to do that. But um, so, yeah. So my practice is a repeat performance, I say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's over and over the same thing. Because I think what I'm trying to work out in this practice of mine, which intersects between exhibition making, research, and teaching, mm -hmm. I'm trying to work out in all of these spaces and in my exhibition making really what it means to be for us black folks to express our humanity. And so in every exhibition that I take up, it is the core of it, just mm -hmm. expressed differently through different artists and through different thematics that allow that humanity to be brought to the fore mm -hmm. for audiences. So I think my practice is just repeating that same thing over and over and over, using different articulations through artists, using different kinds of architectural spaces, mm -hmm. using different kinds of communities across the country and elsewhere yeah. to try to think through those ideas. I love a repeating performance. Curating is making and a repeating performance. I love that. I can abide it by that. Let's write a new book about <laughs> curating. No. Actually, no see, that's why I didn't want to talk about it because that just came to me. If I actually had to think that through, I would try mm -hmm. to start theorizing it. But it came to me and I think it's kind of pretty. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, that was not even part of the question because that's why I realized when I speak with you, like I have questions, but then other emerges and, and other emerge and then um then then we go there and then we talk about repeating performances. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> um which is like gold, but because uh we are we are trapped in the spectrum <laughs> of linear time. And so yes. one quick last thing, which is, I think I would love, I want to hear, and I would love the listeners to hear, I think it will bring everything we've talked about together. Like, what is a cultural legacy that you hope to co-create through the Center for the Study of Black Canadian Diaspora? I mean, it's more than an archive. There's, as you were saying, there's kind of like an, an embodied experience of of meeting but I also want to hear the other aspects that you're hoping will last through that project right so you know I think it's really quite simple for me I think and maybe mm -hmm. it's not that simple but what I what I'm hoping for is that my grandchildren your children mm -hmm. will have a place and a sense of themselves in visually textually that we have been here that we are here that we have been producing that we continue to produce mm -hmm. and we continue to produce in the context of trying to understand and undo the positionings that settler colonialism has placed us within in this country I just want mm -hmm. us to understand that we have had a long history, a history that's complex, mm -hmm. a history that has been part of the violence of the settling of the country. Mm -hmm. But we have been here. And, 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 you know, this notion of always looking for ourselves 
while we're mm-hmm. standing right in front of us is one that I'd like to help to minimize as we go forward. And we have another book. <laughs> Trying to find ourselves, <laughs> searching for ourselves one, one, um, while standing in front of us. This is, I mean, you've said it really beautifully. I was like stumbling, <laughs> trying to repeat that. <laughs> um, yeah, I really want to be respectful of your time. I know you're a very busy person, um, but also um, since you are, you know, ever so inspiring, I know we will talk more soon. Yeah, I just want to thank you. And maybe uh, if you have something uh, coming up that you want to share, um, you can do so now. Um, yeah, uh, an exhibition, a talk, <laughs> a, a something I will put um, in the show notes um, so that people can uh, look it up. But also, I will definitely, um, you know, uh, search for all of the names and places and exhibition titles and and previous works you have uh, named in this episode. Um, Again, in thinking through intergenerational dialogue, um, Pamela and you have been wonderful in kind of um, in the remembering, remembrance, uh, oral history, um, kind of like re-archiving through this podcast, um, pivotal moment of uh, collective creativity so yeah I also want to thank you for taking the time to do this type of work um, to talk Mm -hmm. about our practices and to be in conversation with practitioners so thank you thank you very very much because I think this is part of the work around making sure that we see ourselves oh thank you so much I mean people cannot see but I'm literally like my my face is contracted by shyness (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. <laughs> so, yeah, do you have any uh, talks, articles, interviews, something coming up in the coming months or now? <laughs> um, yes, there is an exhibition opening of uh, Practices Ritual, Ritual as Practice at Articule in Montreal, I believe it's on March 17th, 2023. Um, and the exhibition is an exhibition, a traveling exhibition of the works of 10 artists who in 1989 created the first Black feminist touring exhibition in Canada. And this exhibition is a way of um, honoring the artists for the work they've done to allow people like you and I, Jean VF, to do the work we do. Mm-hmm but also as a way to show the sustained work of 10 Black artists over the past 30 years. Hmm. That's it. Perfect. Well, (laughs) we wrap up on time. (laughs) Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. And uh, very grateful for this moment. Thank you. This episode was made possible through the support of the Canada Arts Council and the Centre of the Study of Black Canadian Diaspora. I send my deepest gratitude to my collaborator and invited guest. I am grateful for your presence, labour and for embarking on this adventure with me. I recorded this episode in Jojage, which is situated on the traditional territory of the Kanyakehaga nations and long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst many First Nations, including the Kanyakehaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Uho-Wandat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe. The theme music is Raindrops Unhearted by Shaltekar.